Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. Hey, turfs and trannies. You are listening to Heterodorks. I am your co-host, Nina Paley. And I am your other co-host, Corinna Cohn. And today we have a special guest heterodork with us. He is, are you still on the, the board of FAIR? I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm on the advisory board, yes. Not the, not the board board, but the advisory board. Not the board board. board. Our guest is Xander Keeg, and uh, Xander has a long background in social work and in the, the trans world and the gender world, and is now a, a I wouldn't call you a, a, a justice warrior of any stripe, because I guess you, you've been in the Coast Guard, but they don't have guns, right? So uh, They do now. <laughs> they do now. God, it's Homeland Security now. But uh, can you give us a little bit more of your background? Because you ha- you've had such a long and, and complicated story. So what are the most important parts for people to know? Most important parts? Oh, let's see. Well, it might be helpful for people to know uh, my age. So I was born in 1966 uh, in Los Angeles, California. I'm first generation uh, born in this country. My family's from Mexico. My parents were divorced when I was two. You know, sometimes people think those things are important mm. um, influences. I think what's a what's a really important feature of my childhood is that when I was six, I was living in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, my mother took me off to the doctor to get my vaccinations, you know, for the first day of school. And one of them was the MMR, measles, mumps, mm. rubella vaccination. And I, like several other children that received shots from the same clinic, all contracted rubella. Not all the kids, but a group of us from that clinic contracted rubella. And um, that led to some severe seizures. They put me into a medication-induced coma for two weeks. And when they brought me out of it, uh, I was paralyzed on the left side of my body. I was blind in the left eye. You know, I had significant brain swelling. So they had to drill a hole in my head to relieve the pressure. So needless to say, it took me about two years through physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy to rehabilitate back to a somewhat of a normal, a new normal for me. It also impacted a lot of my cognitive functioning as a young person. I got tracked into special education and then found myself institutionalized for about three and a half years from age 13 to 16. Wow. Yeah. So a little older than 16. So I didn't 16 know that and a half. Part. Yeah. So uh, the, some of the I guess the consequences, so to speak, of the encephalitis, right? When your brain swells up and you have no idea what it's, how that's going to impact the individual. And so the, the way it impacted me is, as it was described to me, I was a very quiet, self-consuming, like kind of child where I could just sit for hours and hours and read a book or listen to the radio. All of a sudden, once I came home after all the rehabilitation, uh, enough to get me out of the hospital, at least, I was very aggressive and very, I guess, violent, so to speak. I was, um, I was getting bullied a lot. And so I was lashing out um, as a result of that. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's an interesting impact as far as, especially when we talk about gender, because I have no recollection of those years and I have no recollection of, of anything pre around 10 years old. So when I hear people say, you know, oh, I knew I was trans when I was five, I'm like, I don't remember being five, right? So it, it, ch- it changes my story quite a bit, I think. And also because going through the paralysis, the idea of being born in the wrong body never made sense to me. I'm just happy to have a body that functions at the level that it does. 
So I think that that's important as far as how it's impacted my life in many ways. I was tracked into special ed. I was institutionalized where I was forced to go to school, right, in kind of a special school. And then I dropped out at age 17, wandered around the country for about three years doing odds and end jobs. And then I took the GED and the ASVAB and went into the Coast Guard. And so for anybody who knows what that means, like getting into the Coast Guard is not easy, right? It's a very, very small military um, service branch. It's Department of Homeland Security. And you have to score higher on the entrance exam, the ASVAB exam. And so I did well enough that I took the GED without studying and I took the ASVAB without it. So I, I, I was not a stupid kid. I was just behaviorally you know, mm. problematic, so to speak. I was incorrigible. That's what they labeled me, which now I think would be oppositionally defiant. Oh, you're um, in good company. Yes, I love it. I hate it. <laughs> I, I hate it, yes. <laughs> That's perfect response. You know, it's like, I've always been very countercultural. I found myself in lesbian community um, starting around age 14. I had my first girlfriend. I came out to my mother at the time. No problems there, no issues. I came out to my father years later. I just wasn't around him as much at that point in my life. I had a, a good life in the lesbian community. I refer to myself as a dyke, which always upset the lesbians which I like doing. I thought that was kind of funny. So can I interrupt yeah. to ask just briefly, because yeah. now I have to know. Yeah. Nina is somebody who is sometimes identified by others as being a, a butch lesbian. Oh, do, do you see anything in, in the yeah. heterodorks co-host here, which would strike you as being a butch lesbian? No, absolutely not. All right. No, but I'll tell you one thing. If I look at pictures of myself now, when people imagine, people thought, oh, you're really masculine. I, I wouldn't say I was like diesel dyke, you know, like really uber, uber masculine. I was more androgynous, but I thought of myself as looking very masculine. When I look at pictures of myself now, I'm like, I was kind of girly looking. <laughs> but I had short hair and I was, I'm five, nine, so I'm tall and I've always been very big. I'm, I was an athlete, you know, most of my life. So I had a sense of confidence about me. And I think people interpret that kind of posturing and stance, you know, not posturing, but the posture of the stance as being maybe masculine, which, you know, that's a whole nother issue about, you know, why can't women just be confident and it be feminine? <laughs> well, yeah. But, um, I think that the people who, We've had two guests who both called me, just assumed I was a, I mean, you can assume I'm a lesbian. I don't know how you could assume I'm butch because the, their idea of what butch is is questionable. But I yeah. think it had more to do yeah. with living in Los Angeles or living in a, in a certain way in Los Angeles, like a certain image conscious Los Angeles. I think that there are some mm. standards for women where merely not wearing makeup and having short hair makes yeah. you butch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, people are influenced by the L word, probably. <laughs> You're California butch. That's right. <laughs> that's a very low bar for butch. I guess that's what I was, too. <laughs> I was a California butch. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I served in the military and then I went into law enforcement for a little while and then completely pivoted and went into the natural foods industry and was working as a chef or not really a chef because I'm not culinary trained, but a cook in, um, in a vegan restaurant. And then I went to college. I was 30 years old when I started college. 
Oh, me too. Yeah. And people say to me, why did, why did you go to college when you were 30? I said, well, there are two reasons. One, I was sick of working because I'd been working since I was quite young. Um, and two, I got to the point in my career where I was starting to be required to wear professional women's clothing and I just couldn't do it. And so I escaped into the academy to be able to just, you know, continue dressing like a, you know, a little hoodlum. And, uh, and, and I stayed there for about a decade. I stayed at the academy for about a decade through the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, Where did you go to college? I went to Metropolitan State College of Denver, which is now Metropolitan State University of Denver. They added some um, graduate degrees, but it was baccalaureate granting institution when I was there. It's a commuter campus. There's no residential life. It was a really wonderful experience. I worked in the GLBT student services um, office. Uh, that's what we called it mm -hmm. then. And it stood for gay, lesbian, bi, not bisexual, and trans, not transgender. And this was in the mid-1990s. So I thought it was quite, quite progressive. I loved Denver. Denver is a beautiful city. And then I went off to graduate school and then I went to seminary. And then that's where I met my wife, Margaret. That was a little over 20 years ago now. And then a few years after that, I went and got my master's in social work. So I've, I've been doing social work now for about uh, 13 years. It's sort of a second half of your life type of career. Yeah, because I was in my early 40s when I started the MSW program. So I have to ask, when did you trans in all of this? <laughs> when did you trans? When did you trans? Let me give you an answer that um, will satisfy, you know, different people's curiosities. So in, when I was in college, I was introduced right before I started college, I saw a documentary called, you don't know Dick, right? So this is 1996. You don't know Dick, the first feature length documentary about trans men. Then a year later, a book came out called Body Alchemy by Lauren Cameron, a trans man, photographer. It was books of photography, uh, pictures. And I remember seeing the pictures in the book and remembering, oh, those guys were in the documentary. You don't know Dick. And that's when I already, I knew a couple of trans men, but that was the first time it was really like right in front of me and I could look at it and remember and hear the stories and then go, wait a minute, that person took testosterone and now looks like that. It was kind of like before and after pictures of like Jameson Green and Maxwell Valerio, right? Some pioneering trans mm -hmm. men in the United right. States. And I was like, oh, now that's interesting. But I just sort of filed it away. I didn't think, oh, that's me. That's what I'm going to do one day. And but I decided that after um, going and listening to Leslie Feinberg read from Stonebutch Blues, which was a new book at the time. She came to the women's bookstore in Denver and I, and she introduced to this concept of the word transgender means you're transgressing gender norms. And I thought, well, I'm transgressing gender norms for sure. So I'd say that in some ways, a trans identity entered into my consciousness in 1997 or eight. And then it wasn't until another a few, few years late, maybe so like, um, maybe in 2000, that's when I started referring to myself as trans. I didn't actually have to do a social transition because my name prior to Xander was already very masculine sounding. It, was, it could it be a male or female name. And um, I had short hair and I dressed the same as I dress now. So I didn't actually have to go through like a social transition. I was already kind of living, living it. But I'll say that's a sort of a social kind of transition. And then I started hormones in 2004. So... Yeah. So that's when I officially started the medical process of transitioning was 
was in July of 2004. Are you, are you still taking HRT? I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, stopping would not be a very good idea because I've had a full, you know, uh, what do you call it? I've had the, um, the, oophorectomy the, and the do the double salampingo oophorectomy. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's other parts of the body that make hormones, but that's where the bulk of them come from. So I'd have to be on, I'd have to be on H, you know, either HRT or cross sex hormones, either one. So, and I like the effects of testosterone. I like my life very much. So I wouldn't want to make any changes in that area. It's something that I have some, I don't know what the, the right word is, uh, mixed feelings about. Yeah. I have been on estrogen for 30 years and I often get people asking, and you, you probably get a similar question, Xander. Well, why don't you take the, if you have to take HRT, why don't you take the HRT that would be more in line with what yeah. your uh, sex is? I've never actually been asked that question. Really? No. Why don't um, you take HRT that's more in line with what your sex is? Ha ha, I'm the first one. <laughs> well, I, I think my answer would be the same because I really like my life. I, I like the way I look. I like the way I feel. You know, one of the one of the after effects of the encephalitis, right, with the paralysis is that there was certain weaknesses um, mm-hmm. in the left side of my body that were had didn't go away but obviously i could get into the military it wasn't it wasn't too disabling but as i've gotten older you know some more of those residual effects were starting to come into play and once i started testosterone not immediately of course but after a few months of the testosterone in my body um all of a sudden i could go on very very long walks without fatigue and without discomfort and so it, it improved my, my life, my quality of my life in that way significantly. And also it, it improved my life in the way that, um, as you've probably heard, or you can imagine that the world's not too kind to masculine women. And so being able to just blend in uh, and look like a man took all of that energy away from me, right? I could just go to the bathroom in peace. I could just walk down the street holding hands with Margaret in peace. I, you know, so I lost some things, right? It's not the same to go into say an LGBT event anymore because we look like the straight couple that's invading the space. But so, but the pros to me outweigh the cons. And so that's why it's, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. However, I, I get, I, I get your point. I acknowledge it. My sex is female and I don't deny that. And what I say to people is, I live in the world as a man, but my sex is female. That's not a problem for me. It's become a problem to other people who have tried to make it my problem, but it's not a problem for me. Can you talk about that more? How it's become a problem for other people? Who, like, who's it become a problem for? I just think there are certain individuals within the trans community in particular. So I'll, I'll start with the on, in the on the trans side that acknowledging a natal sex, you know, or biological sex has become, you know, a lightning rod topic. And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, it, it might be just ideologically driven. I'm a modernist, not a postmodernist, so I'm not very well versed in 
what those influences are. I mean, I, I went to college in the 90s. I know what postmodernism is. I know what queer theory is, but it doesn't inform my worldview at all. So I haven't kept up with how it's being utilized, how it's being you know used by people. And so I, I would imagine that there's some of that that's influencing people to think that that the idea of biological sex is a scientific truth that is to be denied like other scientific truths because evidence-based is perhaps part of the patriarchy, you know, kind of. I get why they're saying those things. I get, I understand the worldview. I just don't subscribe to it. And so I think it's people who have that kind of worldview who want to deconstruct and dismantle and erode anything that is considered to be traditional. Now, on the other side, some of the pushback I would get is, well, people would might say to me something like, you'll never be male. And I'm like, well, I know that. You know, so more on the conservative side, but not, not regular, little C conservative. I'm, I'm talking about more right wing, you know, you'll always be a, a woman. And it's like, well, okay, but people aren't going to man me. You can, it's not going to upset me at all. I don't really care. But I think, so I get, it's sort of a push of like total essentialism and there's no such thing, right? It's like, and I live in that world that's about the 85% of us on the planet who say, it's okay, honey. Like, you know, <laughs> you can live in the world how you want to live because you're an adult and you can, you know, do what you want to do. So... But I don't get it very often, and I think the pushback on either side, and that's mostly because I'm not on social media, but sometimes things I do get picked up by social media. And I, I find it fun to go and read comments, and if I can, I'll access them, and I'll actually respond back to people. And I've become quite friendly with people who started out saying really what they thought would be very like hurtful or damning things against me. And, and I, just do, I just do a very gentle correction of their assumptions and uh, move on, you know, and then they're like, is this really you? Are you the person that this article's about? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. So I've noticed in my own interactions online, it's, it's not always this case, but if sometimes you're gentle with people who are sort of violent and, and or mean in their tone, aggressive in their approach, if you just sort of let it go off your back and, and you're still sort of nice or kind I hate to use those words because they're they're they've been banned on this program, but if you're gentle in response to somebody who's aggressive, sometimes they turn around and they're like, "Look, I'm really sorry. I'm mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry I took it out on you. I'm I'm really oh, yeah. frustrated by this." No, I've had that experience a lot, and I think you're right. I think they're just they're 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 ready to be defensive because yeah. typically people are going to sort of push back against them really strongly. And I just know that, you know, it's, I'm not just a social worker. I do have also a master's degree in conflict analysis and resolution. Like, it's like, if you mm. want to mitigate conflict, you're not going to be able to do it by um, arguing or, or trying to convince people of that they have the wrong opinions. That's not how it works. Right. And so I'm more, ba I'm interested more in consensus building than in um, conflict based, you know, movements. So I'm, it's, it's not going it, to, I think it surprises them. So if somebody says to me, you know, well, you might, you might masquerade as a man, but you'll always be female. And when I say, yeah, I know that they go, oh, wait, I was expecting this person to call me a name or, 
you know, try and convince me of something. And it's like, no, you can think that if you want. And, and it's, it's true, literally. <laughs> so, it just makes more sense to me. It makes more sense to me that what I have control over is how I react and respond to people. I don't have control over what people think, what they say, what they do. And if I'm, if I'm just walking around the planet and I'm in constant reaction mode to everything that people are doing or saying, that's going to make my life pretty unbearable. And I think, I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of people who are living lives that are probably becoming unbearable to them, if not already, because they're constantly at the whim of everybody else's thoughts and, and, um, and speech. Now, did you have that figured out before you became a social worker or got a master's degree in conflict resolution? Or, or is that something that you had to actually get an advanced degree to figure out? I, I think a lot of it started, you know, the seeds were planted when I was institutionalized. Because when what? I was institutionalized, what I got to see was that, what I mean by institutionalized, I spent three months in a psych hospital and then... Um, they determined that that wasn't the right place for me. So they sent me off to a group home for juvenile delinquent girls. And then I spent about two years there. And then I was discharged to home. And after a month, I tried, attempted to take my life. And I was sent to another psychiatric hospital where I stayed for one year and underwent conversion therapy for about nine or 10 of those months. And so the what I learned through that is that you know, and maybe this wasn't the right lesson to learn, but I did learn it this or the right way to learn it. But what I did learn is that I was in this unit, right? Psychiatric unit, girl, you know, delinquent girls school. And all I could think of is, well, where are the adults? Like we, we weren't just born this way. Something happened to us. I know something happened to me. So I was thinking the people who mistreated me, the people who failed me, in their in their upbringing of me those are the people should should be in the institutions not the mm. children right the children are are paying the cost of poor parenting or poor guardianship or whatever it was um or just you know bad things happening you know in in their environment from other adults and either, even other kids and so it was clear to me that that's the way it was and it was a big game we were supposed to be there and we were supposed to do what we were told and you know it, everything was you know it was, it was basic good training for the military right do what you're told and i liked the structure of that so it didn't bother me that much but you know the idea of having to go every day day after day after day for that three and a half year period of time in these types of facilities it just dawned on me like if I want to get out of here, I've got to learn how to play the game, right? I've got to learn how to say the right thing, do the right thing, because the way I was behaving in the, in the beginning of it was, you know, I was just throwing fits and getting locked up in the seclusion room and tied down to the floor and getting shots of Thorazine pumped into my body. So I, I didn't want that anymore. I had to figure out a way. This is before they had laws where they could only keep you for 72 hours unless you were a harm to yourself or other people. So I was, I was kept, I had no rights. My parents just signed me in and that was the end of it. I was gone for three and a half years. So it's, it's different now, but I just, I learned that you have to play the game. And so playing the game to me, like being diplomatic, that's part of playing the game. If I want to get what I want to get personally or societally, I'm going to play the game. I'm going to use whatever language I need to use in order to be more persuasive. 
in order to build rapport with people, in order to find a consensus or find a bridge, a way to build a bridge. I'm going to do it. I think it's a slight manipulation, but I think it's a manipulation with positive, not negative. Well, it's just absolutely incredible that you did not grow up to be a Batman villain. I was on the verge. I really was very close. When I was, um, well, right before I joined the military, when I was 20 years old, I was in a relationship with a woman and I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to things like alcoholism and drug addiction. I didn't have any exposure to that really growing up. And so I found myself in a relationship with a woman who was older than me. So I was 17. She was probably 24 and she had already been in the military. And it turns out that she did have a problem with alcohol and she was quite controlling and it turned out to be abusive, but I didn't know that in the very beginning. And so I needed to escape this uh, relationship. And so I did a pro con list and I wrote out three options. This is all I could think of at the time. I could kill myself. I could commit a federal crime because I knew it'd be better to go to a federal penitentiary than a state <laughs> state prison um or i could join the military and thank goodness the military had more pros and cons and so that's what i did but i really did get to a point where i was i couldn't see that my life was going to get any better when you're in a relationship where a person is abusive physically and mentally it can rob you of your own sense of agency also sounds like you had some developmental delays i did yeah i did um, I feel like it, there's a certain time in my life when I got sort of caught up that somehow things just sorted themselves out. I also went into the military where they kicked me into order. <laughs> you said that you went to seminary. Is that right? I did. Yeah. yeah. You definitely, to me, you sound like somebody who's had some spiritual experiences. Absolutely. So, and when you a said lot. that, yeah, when you said that you got to this point, because of these earlier experiences of just ab absolute horror uh, that many people, I mean, it seems like you had, even though you had some developmental delays, you also had some real accelerated education and suffering, mm. I guess. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I have a very, very broad history as far as exposure to different religious and philosophical systems. My, my mother was a um, ordained unity minister which is part of the new thought tradition with uh, religious science and divine science and was involved as a psychic. She was also involved in the spiritualist church. So very metaphysical. And my father, like me, I was raised Roman Catholic, but my grandmother, my paternal grandmother died when I was 13. And so as soon as she died, my father took me out of the Roman Catholic church and took me to the Unitarian Universalist church. So oh, in, the, wow. in the UU church that I was learning all about Quakers and humanists and all kinds of traditions. And then my father traveled a lot for work and he would bring home reading, you know, like little books and booklets and things to read on Taoism and different types of different forms of Buddhism. So I was very interested. So I was reading like um, the, what do I have? Uh, Tao Te Ching when I was like 14, my dad gave me. I had Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was about 15. So I was kind of, and then I had the EST. We talked about that offline. I went through EST training as a, in the child's workshops, children's workshops. So there's- Yeah, tell us about EST, child yeah. EST training. Yeah, EST is E-S-T, all lowercase. It stands for Earhart Systems Training. Um, it's, it's influenced by Gestalt um, uh, therapy, which was 
um, I guess, formulated at Esalen, which is a center in Big Sur, California, where a lot of new age and and sort of more esoteric uh, forms of psychotherapy and, and different psych like transpersonal psychology and some really wonderful and gestalt is one of those don't ask me to describe gestalt because I, I, I can't really but i actually did drop in gestalt therapy at esalen when i was like there you go. 21 <laughs> yeah my dad was a big esalen guy he went up there at least once a year he learned massage therapy at, at, at esalen you know the water massage and so it's um it's est was started by warren warner Earhart. Little interesting fact, his brother took over the business once he had to skip town because there was some legal things going on and family dysfunction. He turned it into Landmark Forum, so it still exists. Um, so for people who have ever heard of or been through Landmark, a lot of people think that they're cult-ish. And I understand why they say that. It's because if you go through any of these uh, personal development or self-actualizing uh, programs, you learn a whole vocabulary, but that'd be like saying the trans community is a cult, right? Because we have our own vocabulary and, you know, some people might think that that's true. There might be some cultish um, points to it, but so. (laughs) I want to know, Xander, what's your, what's your bar for cult? What does something have to be before you'd call it a cult? Um, I'd say a cult for, I, I go very general, I guess, that a cult is an organization that convinces you to cut your ties with your family and your friends and asks for all your money to be invested into the organization and that your focus is on one person who's the charismatic leader of that um, organization. And so there might be components of cults that we can see in different, but it's sort of like having traits of a personality disorder, but not actually having the personality disorder. So I think cults can be like that. There can be there can be markers of a cult that you can see in, uh, in isolation that don't actually make it a cult. So with Est, I mean, one of the things I got from Est was to not be a victim. That was a primary component of the training, especially as a child, was to be able to speak to speak from your own truth, to speak from your own experience, um, but to not be argumentative, right? It's not a debate. It's just it's just contributing to to you know our surroundings, the interactions that we have with people, and to not feel constantly on the at the whim of other people, to not be a victim. And I, I think that really got in. Being a child going through est means that the tools and strategies that I learned, the concepts that I was taught are now just sort of interwoven into me. I can't really pull it out and go, this came from Est or this came from Playground, which is another one that I went through with my dad. Like, I I can't really do that. Sort of like, I can't really pull out and say, I got this from the Unitarian Universalist Church and I got this from the Religious Science Church. It's because it happened when I was young. And so it just gets gets integrated in. But I think all told, you know, told it, it does contribute to my keen interest in lots of different systems i'm not a joiner or a follower so i'm like a i'm not a member of a church i've rarely been um, a regular participant or attendee or congregant in a church but i have attended for example when i lived in salt lake city i went to a single ward um that that is um, basically a mormon church um oh for single people they have singles wards and they have married wards um yeah 
Yeah. Um, and then the bigger, the bigger regional um, church is called the stake. So you have wards and stakes. Um, you know, if there's a church that has stakes, so that sounds a little <laughs> bit better than I've always, my father took me to my first Govinda's when I was about 12, which are the Hare Krishna restaurants. And I've eaten at Hare Krishna restaurants all over the country. I love them. I love going and hanging out with Hare Krishnas, but I don't want to be a Hare Krishna. I've attended many of the uh, different kinds of Quaker meetings, but I've never become a Quaker, but I do definitely like the Quaker message and the Quaker community. Yeah, but going to seminary was about learning about different systems. I did, I got a master's in theological studies, and so I studied Islam and Judaism and Hinduism, Christianity, Buddhism. All Most of my elective courses were in Buddhism. Which one would you say is correct? <laughs> I'm a firm believer in perennial wisdom. I think they all have kernels of, I wouldn't say truth. I'd say they all have kernels of wisdom that mm. um, people can, people can apply in their lives. Yeah. Well, to me, that sounds like a, an avoidant answer. Like, I think you probably have studied enough. You know, which one is the right one. You just don't <laughs> want to offend anybody. Well, I think actually the more you study, the more you're convinced there's no right one. <laughs> All right. Well, you said you're not a joiner, but there's a couple of organizations that you've been a part of in the last few oh, years that sure. have had quite a influence on your life. One of them, I, I guess, would be uh, WPATH and US PATH, which in my mind, for whatever reason, are kind of the same organization, but I know they're different. And uh, they're then the also same. the FAIR, the Foundation uh, Against Intolerance and Racism. Yeah. So, yes. So... You're right. Maybe this is a semantical separation when I say I'm not a joiner, but I was a member of WPATH, <laughs> a professional wow. association. But, you know, maybe that's just me being nitpicky. Um, and I and I am a contractor with the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism and in, on the advisory board. But, yeah, so so U.S. PATH is just the U.S. chapter of WPATH. So the U.S. PATH board is supposed to answer to the WPATH board. Mm. Um so t tell us a little bit about WPATH and USPATH, because you are the first person who's been a, a member of either that have uh, talked to us on, on Heterodox. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you're a member of WPATH and you live in the United States, you're automatically a member of USPATH. It's, okay. not, a, it's not a separate um, membership. So if you live in Europe, you're automatically a member of EPATH. Okay. But it's not true in Canada. If you're a member of WPATH and you live in Canada, I don't know that you're automatically a member of CPATH because CPATH is not an official chapter of WPATH. So we have, there's chapters um, and then there's like organizations that use the same terminology like CPATH, the Canadian Professional Association for Transgender Well, well what's, the, what's the purpose of these groups? What would you say is their, their mm. reason to exist? Well, WPATH is a professional association of individuals who work within trans healthcare. So they could be college professors, medical doctors, nurses, various different kinds of nursing and medical providers, different kinds of behavioral health providers, lawyers who have a keen interest in, you know, maybe they work in a healthcare setting or they represent mm -hmm. clients who are, who are suing based on healthcare, you know, um, claims. So it's a professional association that has a, a biannual convening somewhere around the world, right? So every two years. And then the chapters have their meetings in the interim years. 
Okay. So US Path would have like has its meeting this year because W Path was last year and will be again next year. So US Path is this year. It's in Denver, Colorado this year. And so it's a convening of members who are all somewhat professionally involved. Some of them are trans or trans uh, adjacent um, identifying, and some of them are just individuals who work in trans healthcare or trans medicine, trans law. So there are professional associations, and part of what a professional association does or can do is provide training and credentialing or certification for its members to become recognized as perhaps a specialist. So WPATH has the Global Education Institute. I was on faculty um, with them from 2018 till I um, did not renew my membership at the end of 2022. Can we talk about that a little bit? About yeah, why, why you didn't re renew yeah. your membership? I know a little bit of the backstory, but I don't know what yeah. you're comfortable talking about. Yeah, no, I can talk about it. In, I believe, September of 2021, I was contacted by Aaron Kimberly, the, the founder and, and di executive director, I believe, of Gender Dysphoria Alliance. And he asked me if I would consider becoming an advisor. So not a board member, but an advisor to the GDA, Gender Dysphoria Alliance. And I said, well, let me think about it. And I thought about it for, for about a week. Now, granted, I don't have Twitter, so I had never seen any of the tweets coming out of the GDA, right? And so mm -hmm. that's what people I think were kind of upset with, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, yeah. So I, I looked at the website, and I looked at what was currently on the website. I didn't look in the Wayback Machine. I didn't look at any of the social media because I'm not on it. But what I what my interpretation of what they were doing was something that I thought was very interesting that I had never heard of anybody else doing, which is looking into all the different ways in which gender dysphoria might actually materialize in different kinds of people. Because I know I've been in I've been in the FTM community for 20 years now, and I've, I've been talking to hundreds, if not thousands of trans men um, all over the, the country. And I can tell you, we have very little in common other than that we've transitioned, right? Um, and so why not, why wouldn't gender dysphoria be different? And so I, I liked that. And I said, yes, I, I will be an advisor. And so my picture and my little bio went up on the GDA website. Not even 24 hours later, because I think there's like watchdog groups or watchdog people who are watching things like that. Uh, US Path got a, um, I don't know, I don't know if it was an email, a phone call, but they got some sort of communication revealing or, or disclosing or whatever the language might be that I had joined a, a transphobic, an anti-trans organization, which I found a little ludicrous because it's all trans people <laughs> who founded it and run it. And so um, I, I, was, um, I was notified that I had been, that this complaint had been made. And I got a call from one of the board, from one of the US PATH board members. And he asked me to resign from my position as chair of the US PATH um, Advocacy Committee. Now, I'll go back just briefly to say in 2020, WPATH recognized me as the Educator of the Year Award. I won the Distinguished Harry Benjamin Educa you know, Educator of the Year Award. So 
in the very beginning of 2021, like January, I was invited to be the chair of this advocacy committee, but we didn't start actually doing any work for months and months and months. So in September, when GDA came to me, I hadn't really actually started doing much work. It was all in development behind the scenes. And the person called me up from the US PATH board, uh, Dr. Saffer, endocrinologist. Uh, he asked me to resign and I said, why would I do that? And he said, well, we think it would be in your best interest to resign rather than being forced out. And I said, but what would be the, what would be the reason I would give, you know? And he said, well, you can just say that your time, your time availability has shifted. And I said, so what you're telling me is you want me to lie to people about resigning when I don't want to resign, you're actually pushing me out. But I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And I said, so now that you've given me this, you know, opportunity, what happens next? And he said, well, if we don't hear from you in one week, we're going to send you a letter saying that you've been removed. And I said, okay, then do it. And then I'm going to tell everybody what you guys did. <laughs> well, this is, what was it? You said uh, oppositional defiance disorder. That's right. That's, that's just this, uh, that's right. just raising its head again. Yeah, no, don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's what ended up happening. I was removed in my, as my, in the position as chair. So they took, they took the person who was educator of the year, the year before made them the chair. And then because somebody thinks gender dysphoria Alliance is a transphobic anti-trans organization, I was removed. Now I was removed without any transparency. Like I don't actually know what the complaint was. I never saw it. Um, I had no appeal process. I had no, I had no rights. And so I was also sitting at the time on the ethics committee for WPATH, which is the global, right? The ethics committee for the global professional association, not the U.S. chapter. And so I went to the next ethics committee meeting and I said, this is what's happened to me. And they were all aghast. And I said, I'm not going to resign. I'm going to remain with the organization one more year if we can work on a uh, process and procedure for how to deal with complaints that come in and how, um, how people are to be notified that a complaints come in and how to be part of the process rather than just being you know, on the receiving end of you're out. And so we spent that whole year, all of 2002, working on that process. And I think it's in the hands of the WPATH board right now. And they're, they're, you know, but I'm not involved with it anymore. But I did spend that whole year last year, 2002, with the ethics committee working on the uh, procedure and the process for how to do complaints within the organization at all levels, EPATH, USPATH, all of them. Well, it sounds like you had at least some uh, allies or defenders in the organization. Oh, absolutely. No, the, yeah. absolutely. The people that are part of the ethics committee are people who follow ethics, <laughs> like professors who teach ethics and people who are, who are, have studied ethics and, you know, medical ethics. And it's uh, like I said, they were every single member of the ethics committee was, was not happy with what happened to me. They didn't like it. Um, so I was, so that's why I, I decided like, if they would have said, no, that's not something we want to work on. I would have said, I understand you're working on other things. And I would have resigned last year. So I would have at the end of 2021, I just wouldn't have renewed, but I stayed on for an additional year to see that process or that project through. And then I, and then I left. U.S. PATH wanted you to resign as chair 
yeah. of that committee, but they didn't want to boot you out of the organization altogether. No, you can't. If you're a member of WPATH, you're a member of USPATH. So they 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 had no standing oh, to okay. boot me out of WPATH. Got it. Because honestly, if they had tried to do that, it would have been a very different fight. Because it's like, well, what evidence do you have? What what what's the claim? What's the charge? It would have been a bigger deal. But they were well, able the, to do the it. Accusation is the evidence, though, Xander. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, Dr. Erica Anderson was the at the time. Dr. Erica Anderson was just she had just left. She had just her. Her um, position as president of the U.S. Path Board had just elapsed, and she was now the like past president. And there was a new president, Maddie Deutsch. She's a trans woman medical doctor in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and so she was at the head of that um, U.S. Path committee. I don't know exactly who was involved in 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 getting rid of me because again, there was no transparency. The only person I ever talked to was Dr. Saffer. Or safer. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name. And I had always had a good relationship with with Doctor Saffer, so I think he. I think maybe he was hoping that I would just go away quietly, and and um, I, I think they just don't really know who I was at all. <laughs> now, had you been a part of or an advisor to Fair at this point? Yes, I I became an advisor. So, so I was contacted in in April of 2021 to become part of the fair advisory board and it was official i believe in july or august so yes i had already been part of the fair advisory board i wasn't a senior fellow yet that came um a few months later but i was on the advisory board i was also at that time i was on contract with plume to build their emotional support program that they now have Mm. as part of their services and and very briefly what's plume Plume is a telemedicine company founded by two medical doctors. One of them is a trans woman and it is a telemedicine company. So it's, it's access to uh, medical providers via uh, telephone video. Hmm. Yeah. Plume. There's a bunch of them like folks health and queer doc and trans clinic. There's, you know, especially during the pandemic when doctor's offices were closed and, um, they became um, a very, a very bene- you know, useful access to care. Some I, I have not used any of these services. I haven't uh, I don't, either. Yeah, I don't expect I will. But I've I've heard some criticism of them by mm. people who have used them, mm. which is that they're just basically, I don't know what what did they used to call the opioid doctors oh, that pill we just mills. pill mills that these are just basically the the hormone version of pill mills that you go on, you you say that you want to transition. And that they uh, take some information from you and then send you a prescription. Well, what I would say is that um, they subscribe to the um, no barriers, you know, mm-hmm. or no gatekeeping kind of philosophy. And so, um, I, having never really gone through their process, my hope is that they are at least doing, you know, uh, a biopsychosocial assessment that doctors do and 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 nurses do and, and care managers do so i hope they're at least doing that i was confident in knowing that with the emotional support services people were going to have access to not psychotherapy but psychoeducation right and and peer-based group psychoeducation is um, where you learn tools and strategies for uh, regulating emotions and tolerating distress and managing stress and mm. getting a good night's sleep so it's all the things that you can use 
um, in order to um, not become sort of like a victim to your anxiety, right? You don't get uh, sad, you, you don't get hijacked by your emotions. You learn how to respond to things rather than react to things. That's what I do for a living. I basically teach psychoeducation. It's interesting because those emotional management skills seem to be very lacking in mm. modern trans activists. Well, I don't know how, how much you've read up on uh, um, the book Coddling of the American Mind. and Yeah. So, you know, there, I don't know if it's a theory. I'd say it's probably a concept that, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name, not Jonathan Haidt, the other author of the book, um, from Fire. Yeah, that, you know, he, he, he posits that rather than teaching cognitive behavioral ther therapy skills, which would be the things that I just mentioned, those kinds of things, instead of teaching those skills to kids, our, our society became um, more vested in uh, creating a, a generation of people with cognitive distortions, right? So personalizing things, catastrophizing things, emotionally reasoning through things, magical thinking, no needing a safe space, right? That, that, that is all, according to the idea, right? That's all a direct result of when a person says, oh, those words are like violence and the system responded with, you're right, let's remove those words. And it's like, no, that's not how you, you do it, right? As a person who is not only a veteran, but I worked in the VA and with the DOD as a, as a licensed clinical social worker, we know that exposure therapy is a very evidence-based and very successful treatment for people with post-traumatic stress. So you actually want to expose people in increments as you get, it get that gets bigger and bigger, you know, larger and larger exposure to the thing that they are anxious about or avoiding or triggered or traumatized by versus shielding them off from all those things. That is, that is not going to help them in the long run. And that's kind of what's happened, that sort of shielding off or coddling as they refer to it. Yeah, I was going to say that that technique of exposure and resilience, that does not seem to be happening. Well, in some cases, I don't know. I don't know if you've also um, inferred this from what people do and say, is it the idea of having being a resilient person and saying that resiliency is something you can develop? It's something you can cultivate in yourself is somehow um, that in and of itself is, quote, problematic. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a microaggression. Yes, I think that that's exactly what I think people take it as. But then, like, then then they're they are guilty at that time of cognitive distortion, right? Because they're they're reasoning through their emotions um, rather than just hearing it for what it is. Um, it's now a it's it's not cash, but it's like cachet, right? It's it's you you get. Um, you get people to click on the little thumb. So you're getting rewarded. There's a benefit. You feel a sense of belonging to a group of people you might never even interact with in person, right? So it really does have, it does have a benefit. It releases, it triggers off little happy hormones. And so it's hard to then try and work with people to say, that's, there are other ways to do that. You can get rewards by doing it differently. You can reframe it. You can, there's a lot of things that you can do, but it, um, I think people are locked into more of a sense of my reality is my reality and the, my lived experience, right, is lived experience is what is uh, paramount 
and it trumps everything else. And so if you don't believe me, then you're denying my existence. You're trying to eradicate me, right? The words that you hear now. I had a thought recently that the belief that you can literally change sex is delusional. It's a wish that people wish were correct. And then they just decide that it is, they just decide it's a fact. And when you decide that's a fact, that's a delusion. But it's also a delusion if you decide what you're afraid of is a fact. So I almost think these two things go together, this, this delusion that humans can change sex and also this, this persecution complex is equally delusional. It's like paired with the wish. It's like the fear and the wish are equally strong and they're believed in equally. They become real for the person doing the wishing and the fearing. You know, I remember early on in in my medical transition when I was going to a lot of different discussion groups and support groups and conferences all over the country. I was I would talk at conferences, I would attend, you know, different workshops, and I remember running into people who they weren't satisfied, right? It wasn't satisfying enough to them to just say like I'm trans, whether they're transsexual or transgender or genderqueer back in the day, right? Whatever they want. They weren't that that wasn't satisfactory. They had to know why, why am I this? And so they would, they would use language like it's a birth defect, right? I was born in the wrong body, right? It was a birth defect. Or they would say being transsexual is a type of intersex condition, right? Harry Benjamin syndrome, right? Um, because they wanted a purely medical reason. They wanted to be able to go back home to their parents and say, I have a disease or I have a condition or I have a disorder so that means you can't tell me that I'm doing anything wrong or I'm right. So, and I think that was because, well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I would imagine part of the reason might be that they didn't want to be rejected, right, by their family. They didn't want to be rejected by society. And we did a really good job in our country, at least, and maybe I don't know what language they used around the world, but I feel like we did a really good job in the United States of convincing people that sexual orientation is innate and we're born with it. Now, I don't know that that's been proven, but the campaign has been very successful, right? We went from sexual preference to sexual orientation. And when people would say, when did you decide to be gay? The typical retort back would be, who would decide this? Who would decide to be a type of person who would be rejected by society, church, and family? Like, who would decide it? And now my 14-year-old self, when I was asked that question, I'd say, well, I decided it. I remember exactly the day I did it when I was 13 because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to think that way. But I did. I was – but another story. So the needing to have something that's as as concrete as that, right? It's innate. I'm born with it. Um, and if I'm born with it, then that must be that something went wrong something went wrong in the womb or something went wrong. And so it makes sense to me that people want to find, they want to find a simple, easy, understandable way to describe, right? When I talk about it, I say things like, I'm just not really sure, you know, it's hard to put into words. It's a very kind of philosophical experience that, that is hard to describe. And that doesn't work very well for people. They want to know, give me the facts, the nuts and bolts of it. And it's like, yeah, I can't do that. You have to go talk to somebody else who who needs to describe their situation in that way. 
And so for them, right, for them, they don't see it as a delusion or magical thinking, right, uh, in the cognitive distortion context, because it needs to be true. It has to be true because, again, the same answer, the same retort back would be, why would I choose this? Why would I choose something that's going to get me ostracized and targeted for violence and discrimination in the workplace? And you know what I mean? So it's, they have to make sense of it. Um, I think we Westerners have such a weird understanding of what choice is, though, or what free will is. I think so. I agree. There are a lot of things that we choose, uh, not because they're things that we want to do, but because the, the alternative seems worse for whatever reason. Yeah. So if somebody chooses to transition... Uh, they're not necessarily doing it because they they want all of the opportunities to have celebrities fall down at their knees and and praise them. They might feel like that the next alternative is something really dire. But yeah, when you have a whole bunch of people around you saying the reasons that you're feel, that you feel uncomfortable with yourself might be because you're trans. And that starts getting in your head and then there's all of this type of support that's available so that you can get hormones easily or you get uh, therapists who aren't allowed to explore any of the the sort of uh, traumas or or other sort of mental health conditions you're experiencing and can only affirm you. Um, When you get into this sort of situation, there are a lot of things about you and around you that are guiding you to a, a very likely outcome. And it's it's weird to say that you chose to do something when there's so many other external factors that are influencing you. Um, yet there's there's still some element that involves a, a decision somewhere along the line. Well, you know, I like I said just a minute ago about how when the question was why when did you decide to be gay and the retort back would be you know who would choose it and I, I'm talking about literally sitting on panels where that question's being asked from the classroom oh, yeah. typically and when it got to me I'd say oh when I was 13 and it was a shock to the whole panel right and they would be very upset with me and I had a similar occasion in 2008 when I was working on um, gathering up some authors for my first anthology, I sent out calls to a bunch of people that I knew in the trans male community or trans man community. And I said, I want to write this book. Um, and I, you know, I'd like for people to write, write a letter to themselves pre-transition um, about what kinds of experiences they've had, what wisdom they've gleaned, what obstacles and challenges they faced, how they were able to, you know, get through those. And I think somewhere in the description of the, of the book, I referred to it as, you know, when, when you, before you chose to transition or something. And one person wrote me back a pretty strongly worded response, uh, arguing the point that, that trans people don't choose to transition, it's either kill yourself, transition or kill yourself. And I was like, and I thought, well, I wasn't going to transition or kill myself. So I said, well, that that's not that's not reality for me. Um, and then you know, there's always a little bit of the well, maybe you're not really trans kind oh, yeah. of kind of thing. And it's like, so if you're not if you don't feel like you're born in the wrong body or you're going to kill yourself, if you're not so dysphoric or disordered as it was back in that day, 
then you're you're not why would you ever want to do this and it's like well i wanted to be a dyke because i like being a dyke and i wanted to be a trans man because i i like being a trans man so like why isn't that good enough um you know i wasn't 14 i was 39 when i did it you know leave me alone um so it's i want to say something though about gender affirming therapy which is interesting because i don't see why we can't affirm Whatever a person is saying to us, we don't affirm them. That's not what therapists do. We don't we don't affirm the person, but we can affirm that they're not crazy in the, the way they're thinking about their experience. Like, oh, so you're, you know, you have this thought that you are a trans person. Okay, well, let's talk about that. What does that mean to you? Um, do you know other people who are trans or use that kind of terminology? When did you first learn about it? Where did you find, you know, was it Tumblr, YouTube, a book, your parents, like at school? It's like that exploratory part of psychotherapy is just part of therapy. So mm -hmm. I don't like this sort of, um, sort of oppositionalness that develops around you're either doing affirming therapy or conversion therapy and therefore exploratory therapy which is part of all psychotherapies right to explore is now a conversion therapy i disagree with that i i want to be clear though that i i want to make sure that people don't think that if you're a conversion therapist who calls yourself an exploratory therapist i don't stand by that um, but i don't think people who generally do exploration in psychotherapy are conversion therapists but it's like we can affirm a person's um, concept of themselves without without it being a like stamp of approval. Like I, I wish people could differentiate between, you know, well, tell me more about that. That that's not denying. I don't think we should be persuasive or dissuasive in psychotherapy. Right? We're not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to just let people sort of unfold. It uh, depends on your theoretical orientation. You're either more or less directive in that process, but it's all about letting people, you know, work through their own, you know, story, so to speak. And so I think that we've gone a little too extreme in creating this duality between conversion and affirmative. And it's like all psychotherapy is in the middle of those two things, right? It's uh, but again, I do think that we can affirm people because it's not like I would say to somebody, no, you're wrong. You're not that like that's clearly more on the restore reparative or conversion leaning. Yeah. Right. Um, but for somebody to just say, OK, um, you need a letter for hormones. Here you go. That's not gender affirming therapy. That is um, unethical therapy. A pill mill. So it's it's. Um, I, I think I think the idea of gender affirming has been misappropriated and applied to something that is not not affirming in any way of the personhood of the client or patient in front of you. It's a it's affirming an ideology. It's an it's affirming a um, a recipe for disaster in some people's cases, but I don't think it's truly affirming of the well-being of the patient and client. I think the well-being of a patient and client relies upon engaging in that exploration, but not with the behind the mind thinking of, oh, I sure hope they don't do this. I'm going to try and talk them out of it in a gentle way, you know? <laughs> I, I want to maybe ask about a broader topic, which is sort of the, the mental health in some of the, I'm going to say the, the younger part of the trans community, because I would think that you and I are 
are not in that part of it. We're, we're maybe part of the old timers club, but for this younger group, uh, we sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I see that there's a lot of messaging about genocide and extermination. I'll, I'll tell you over the last uh, 24 hours, uh, I, I don't know if you heard about this, but about two days ago, there was a, a young trans person who posted a suicide note online. And this has really caught fire in in the uh, online trans community. Uh, this This person was a Saudi native and uh the family used some coercion and trickery to to repatriate this person and uh appeared to force them to stop their medical and and social transition and this person posted a a suicide note and and uh there's some evidence that uh they took their lives Mm. took their life rather well i mean the thing that you will probably i i don't know if we'd ever find out but um, something that I that I think you know is a possibility is that they didn't write that suicide note and the family took them out. That is a possibility too. However, that happened. Yeah. One of the things that has really caught my concern over the last, I guess, forty eight hours, is that some of the more prominent communicators in the trans community uh, that all happen to be trans women. Strangely, I don't know why that happens. Um, have been really talking a lot about uh, suicides and mass suicides and extermination and uh, death before detransition. And uh, I've, I've reached out to a couple of them um, and said, will you please make sure that you're talking about this sensitively, that you're including some uh, resources for people to follow up with if they're feeling suicidal Will you please look at the Samaritan's Guide on talking about this topic because there's evidence, there's a meta-analysis that shows that media coverage of suicides can cause copycat suicides. Mm-hmm. Like, would you please be sensitive about this because the way you're messaging about it uh, actually could harm other people who are who are your followers. And how um, they responded. One of, one of them to give out some credit caught what I was saying and, and started adding some resources so that people would have some places to go if they're feeling suicidal. And the other one uh, told me to fuck off, basically. Oh. Well, I mean, that's that's disheartening. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious yeah. about your take on this. Well, I mean, suicide is no joke. I dealt a lot with this when I worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs, as you might imagine. Veteran suicide is, is very high. Um. You know, it's, I think it's irresponsible to take the catastrophizing language out into the general public. You know, if individual people are swayed by messaging to feel as if their life is in danger in every, every minute of the day, right? That's something that they need to figure out how to get some assistance and some help with. But then if they take that out into the public and put it onto social media, I mean, it's, it's, it is irresponsible. So I'm glad that you reached out to those individuals. And I, I did read recently that when you call 988, they now do have specially trained um, responders on the other line who are 
who are trained in like LGBT community and uh, resources for the um, community. Hmm. There's also the trans lifeline, which is a trans specific, you know, a suicide hotline, which I haven't had any experience with, but I do know it exists. I've never experienced a genocide. I, from everything I know about a genocide, it's a very, very awful thing. It's like a really, really awful thing. And I don't see, I don't see that actually happening to the trans community in the United States. I think that's, I'm not really sure if people are being disingenuous intentionally or if it's unintentional, right? Like if their anxiety is just so all consuming that that's, that's literally, they do actually believe it because they don't, they don't have, they don't have a toolbox, right? A tool set for how to navigate through that distress. So it, it so they catastrophize. It, it might be unfair for me then simply just trying to exploit some tragedy and getting an audience because that, that, this might actually just be them having uh, poor control and, and just being in anxiety overload. Well, I was going to say there's the others who will use it to their advantage. Oh. Yeah. So, so it's like, but how do we know the difference? I think you, you experienced the difference. One person yeah, said, so. thank you and changed the tone provided, you know, changed their messaging, I should say. And another one told you to F off. That's how you know the difference, right? That's how you know the difference. I think that's at least an indicator to how you could know the difference, but still the elevating that kind of languaging into the interwebs is, um, I think it's, well, I don't want to. I don't want to catastrophize myself and say it's dangerous. They're literally killing people. <laughs> it, it it has the potential to influence people who could be easily persuaded by that kind of message, and then they'll use that as an example of how they're right, which would be really troubling. I give people the benefit of the doubt. It's you've probably noticed that already, because what I want is I want people to to take me at my word. I want people to listen to my message. I want people to consider um, possibilities that they might not have already considered before they make up their mind about me and who I am and and what I think and how I live my life. And so I, I wanna be able to extend that to people um, because the only way for me to get it back is to extend it. And so, but I'm, I'm not a um, easily convinced kind of person. I really do need to be I, I need to seek out multiple different viewpoints and ideas about something um, before I maybe come to my own conclusion. Sometimes I just go, ah, I'm not going to spend any more time on that. And I move on. I don't have, I don't, you know, I know a lot of people, they have like a response or an answer to this or this or this or this. And I, my brain just doesn't work that way. I don't tend to, but I almost always rely on, well, I need to know more about that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear more. So I would like to have conversation with people who don't want to have conversation with me because I think that's what we need. I think we need more people sitting down and talking. It's like uh, when I talk to people who are using the messaging of, you know, trans surgery as mutilation to their body. I don't like that. I don't, I don't think I mutilated my body. So if you want to talk about your surgeries as mutilation, please, by all means, but don't, don't, don't project that out to everybody. And I don't think it's a going to, I don't think it's a useful way to language things um, because 
it's it's there's not going to be any coming together and i do think that that's a better option is to find ways yeah. to to figure out what we do share in common and, and move I, forward i think maybe uh the context changes a little bit when you're talking about 13 and 14 year olds yes which is you know i haven't never worked with youth i don't work with youth so i i don't have a i don't have a um you know, a pony in that race, so to speak. It's not something that I typically talk about because I don't work in that. I'm not very informed about it. Um, when I was with WPATH in the Global Education Institute, I only did my, the, the courses that I taught were only for the adult. Um, they separated the adult clinician, people who work with adults and people with children and teenagers. And I, I, never, I never taught to them. I only worked with adults. It's, I've only ever worked with adults. So it's, it's more my, my understanding. Um, yeah. And I think you and I have had conversations about how, right. The, the two main avenues, right. That are, that are being put forward are turnstile access to mm -hmm. transition at all, any age and shut everything down all the way. And it's like, yeah. well, no, you know, th th those aren't workable solutions. Um, so I'd rather figure out a way that we can, you know, come to a different understanding, a different, a different process or a different move forward with that. I'd like to, too. But I, I got to admit that in the last year I've well, since since WPATH SOCA has come out, I have definitely moved more towards the shut it down for now for minors. Well, I, you know, and you're not alone because. I, I think that that's what's happening across the world right now, right? And so I think that there is, I think some of these countries like Sweden and Finland and France and the UK and possibly Australia and New Zealand are, are going in that direction somewhat. It's like the idea is, you know what, maybe we should take a deeper dive into what is being put forward as evidence. Yes. Maybe we should do that. Um, you know, when people talk about, I live in Florida, so when people talk about the things that are going on here in Florida with uh, Governor DeSantis and, for example, like um, denying access to hormones and surgeries and puberty blockers for anybody under the age of 18, I say to them, do you know that one of the experts that testified in support of that move was a Finnish psychiatrist who had been working at a pediatric gender clinic for what, like 30 years or more? Mm -hmm. right? So this it was not somebody who was antagonistic to our community. This is an ally to our community. But their, their deep dive into the research made them pause in Finland. And so they called her up. I don't know if she was here personally or, or virtually, but it's not as if it was like some, some bigoted transphobe <laughs> who's like, stop it, shut it down. You know, it's like, maybe, maybe you should look into the evidence um, and enroll kids into studies right? Which is, I think, yeah. what's going to end up happening in other parts of the world. But I've heard people push back on that idea here in the United States that that I might be wrong, but I think people reference Nuremberg trials, I, something about the 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 requirement of, of people going through like the terrible testing in in concentration camps, like that enrolling kids into a study to keep tabs on them to see what the hormone blockers and things are doing to their body and their mind um, was tantamount to some sort of oh, yeah. forced experimentation. And I'm like, well, that, that just well, doesn't it, make any it sense. It is. 
you, you know, the, the Nazis kept records. We don't want to do that. So I'm not wrong and that that's kind of what people were likening it to where is that what was happening? I, I, I think so. There's, there's all sorts of, mm. y- you could not surprise me with the crazy analogies. Um, let, let me tell you something that happened a, a couple of weeks ago. And if, if you tell me I got to bleep the names out for you to comment, I definitely will. But I ran into the co-director of the Riley Children's Gender, Gender Click Clinic, Dr. Eric Menninger. And I ran into him when I was giving testimony in, in, in uh, support of one of Indiana's bills that would uh, ban uh, medical procedures on pediatrics. And I said to him, if the people in your discipline would do more to raise the bar, to make sure that there was a high level of standards, to ensure that children were not basically just coming in and getting prescribed hormones and and going out on their first visits, if there was more that was being done to to do follow-up and tracking and, and data collection, if your profession was doing this and, and being more self-regulating, I wouldn't have to come here and give support for this legislation. And he said, well, I think WPATH is too conservative. Mm. And I said, well, I don't think it's conservative enough, certainly, especially with SOC 8. But whether or not we think uh, WPATH is, is too conservative or too liberal I certainly know that a lot of doctors in your profession aren't even applying the minimum standards of WPATH. They're just being blithely disregarded left and right. And in fact, uh, he, this doctor was quoted in Reuters as saying that so many of his pediatric patients show up knowing so much about what trans is that he doesn't see any reason why they should have to have the full assessment before having access to medicalization. So he's he's one of these people who, in, in my opinion, appears not to have very much regard for uh, even applying the minimum WPATH standards. And uh, just, you know, he's the co-director of a children's gender clinic. And when I said, if, if you would do more, if you'd be outspoken and try to help police and clean up some of this industry, there would be a difference. And he absolutely would not even acknowledge my ask. I would. I asked him, will you please acknowledge that I'm asking you to do this? And he would not even acknowledge that. Wow. I mean, one of the things about the WPAS standards of care is that they hold up in court, right? So it's, it's supposed to be that they are, that they are, you know, the benchmark, right? Or they're the standards that people should be held to and so if people say, well, I just don't agree with them, or I, you know, I think they're wrong in some way, I don't know how, how they would be able to protect themselves if a lawsuit was brought, right? Because somebody's going to be yeah. able to say, well, you violated the standard of care. And it's been the standards of care have been used in the courts for years and years now all over the world. And so... I don't know how, I don't even know how a court would respond to, well, you know, I just don't like them or I don't agree with them or I think they're too conservative. It'd be like, I don't even know how a judge would respond to that. Well, I, it's, you know, nothing would please me more than finding out. 
Well, I, I think that's what's happening, right? Is that there's going to be more and more of these court cases. And well, now, because we have the ones that are where the, the former patients are going directly after their providers. So it's going to be really mm -hmm. interesting to what, what kind of case are they going to make? Um, I mean, they're probably going to do something along the lines of, you know, doctor patient collaboration and they signed the forms, you know, that said informed consent at the top. And I'm really interested in following. I don't follow it closely, but I'm looking forward to seeing like how it progresses. Um, Cause I know that, well, I don't know, but I've read that for example, at the, at the GIDS clinic at, in Tavistock in London, there had been people going back to, I think early 2000s, like 2003, 2004, who were basically saying, wait a minute, what are we doing? You know, are, we're going a little off track here or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm making up my own language, yeah, but they were basically- Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And so, and, and nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened. And then it got to the point where it got to where they had to just, they're getting ready to shut it. I don't think they're probably taking any new patients and they're going to be doing a different system, but yeah. it's, it's, I don't know what that's been happening in our country, right? I don't, another thing that's really interesting is that when you hear about, like when you hear about Tavistock, I think it was true for them as it is for a lot of the clinics here in the United States is that it depends on who you got assigned as a provider, right? Like some of the providers did their due diligence and they did comprehensive, you know, psychosocial yep. assessments and, and they went to medical providers who did an equally comprehensive bio psychosocial assessment. And there are other people who got assigned to somebody who uh, just fast tracked people. And yep. so that there's that inconsistency and, uh, I think that's probably one of the, I think, wasn't that one of the issues that maybe Jamie Reed was raising about yes. the hospital in St. Louis? And so that inconsistency, and I think Tavistock had the same thing. And I think even, so, you know, some of the other clinics have had those same issues. And it's like, how then, how then can you have in one clinic, I know there's clinicians do have a certain range, sort of like professors have a range in which you don't have yeah. to all adhere to the exact same thing. But when there's a standard of care and you have people all over the place, I don't know how, I don't know how that's defensible. It might be, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, but, uh, yeah, or a medical ethics it, but... expert, but I don't know how they're going to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm hoping that there's going to be some, some justice happening. That's well, then you're, hope. you're much closer to it because I, I, I I've seen the recordings. I've, I've you actually testify. <laughs> yeah, you're, I've, you're I've closer to it. I've heard a lot of it. stories of people getting hurt, and yeah, uh, the biggest reason that people get hurt is because they're not being properly assessed before being given access to this type of treatment. Well, you know, they're, part they're of the issue being, uh, assessed for competency. Part of the issue too is. When we say assessed, what do we mean by that, right? So as a licensed clinical yeah. social worker, to me, that means um, comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment. It's it's foundational. That's what social workers, we, that's what we learn to do. That's our bread and butter. Uh, some of us go into psychotherapy. Some of us are case managers, right? And so it's like, but there are other, there are other counseling professionals that don't do psychosocial assessments. It's not part of what they do is they do evaluations and they do diagnosis, which is not an assessment, right? It, that's a different, they're not asking the same questions. Um, and so when you go to see a doctor, you see the nurse beforehand, they're asking you questions that are on the biopsychosocial assessment. 
right? And so as a social worker, we go into more depth with that on the psychosocial components of, per, of people's, you know, well-being or lack thereof. And so I, I, I agree that not everybody who's trans needs psychotherapy, right? If you don't have co-occurring um, conditions, what would you be in psychotherapy yeah. for? You might want coaching. You might want, I could have benefited from some coaching or, or a bit more formalized peer um, support. Um, but I, I didn't, I don't have co-occurring issues. I don't have generalized anxiety disorder. I don't have major depressive disorder. I don't have autism, right? I have ADHD, but so what? Like that's not really, you know, um, I've had it since I was a kid when they called it hyperactivity. So I've learned to manage it without medication over the years, but it's, it's one of those things where who, what do they mean when they say assessment? And I think that's what really gets, that's what bugs people, right? Is they think what we're saying is you need to go see a therapist and be, assessed for yeah readiness competence but it's not always a psychotherapist who does it if if i want to go have a knee surgery i'm going to be assessed i'm going to have a psychosocial or biopsychosocial assessment conducted on me because they want to know that when they send me back home i'm living in a safe yeah. secure stable housing i have people who can drive me to my appointments i have people who can help me remember to take my medications it, it, it's just I, I think that that's just due diligence as a provider whether it's psychotherapy or physiotherapy. Um, but you, so you, I think that's, uh, yeah. You're, you're describing uh, so far away from the reality that, that that's actually happening to, to so many people right now. Yeah. Well, part of the issue, and I've been, I've been lobbying for this for about the last, what, 10 or 12 years, which is that any surgeon who does trans surgeries should have an at minimum, a nurse who's a clinical case manager who can do that biopsychosocial assessment or have a social worker who can do the biopsycho or psychosocial assessment because it's important to know those kinds of things. And if it turns out that a person has co-occurring issues, then that social worker or that nurse can recommend or refer to psychotherapy, right? Or psychiatry, but it, it's something that comes after the assessment. But if you send me, if I'm if I'm a first day patient, you send me to the gender clinic and I'm seeing a psychologist, they're not doing a biopsychosocial assessment. That's not how they function. That's not their role. So I think we have to be able to delineate what is the role of all the different counseling professions and have have more of them in the setting so that the social worker or the psychiatric nurse can refer, right? A mental health nurse can refer to the mental health providers if that's needed. Well, yeah. I, I feel like we could probably go on for another hour and a half, but we're we're already pretty deeply into this, Sander. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious I'm, what Nina's what thinking because we haven't heard from her in a while. I, I'm really hungry. No, That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about food. <laughs> mm -hmm. It started a few minutes ago. She, I'm just like, hmm. She gets mm. grouchy, too. <laughs> hangry. Hangry. Yeah, I know. It's just like she hungry. Ang no, I'm, wow, I'm hungry. Hitchy. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like that itch that you get, you get in your stomach when when you want to eat something. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Itch, hungry and itchy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Itchy. This is how Corinna talks to me, people. You heard it here. What? <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's fine. Was there was there any other topic that you wanted to talk about, Corinna? Well, I think that we should uh, put together a list of things and then come back maybe for a second part in a, 
okay. either a little later this year or the, the next time we got time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you and your audience will know by now that um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a gotcha person. So, you know, I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to think through what I'm about to say. And, and I'm almost always going to take some sort of path that um, is not typically what people expect or, or even desire. But that's just that's just me. That's my oppositionalness. Now my oppositionalness is is more towards peacekeeping than it is rebel rousing. But it still it still does the uh, setting part, just for a different reason. Right? Different. It's a different group that I'm now pissing off. A different you are group. A punk for peace. A different group you're now pissing off. Well, because when I was growing up, the authoritarians were a different kind of people, right? Like I, I didn't I didn't really think of. The people, you know, I'd say I grew up a fairly classically liberal person who was, I was registered at age 18 with the Green Party and, you know, was part of lesbian community and a vegetarian. And, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of see myself as just your standard sort of typical liberal. I wouldn't describe myself in that way anymore. I'm probably more on the sort of moderate libertarian side, but it's, it's one of those things where the the, the authoritarians that I come into contact with now are the people who used to be part of the part of my group before it was, I remember in the you know eighties and nineties, it was the religious right and the far right and the, the tea party and right. And that would, that was who it was. And then all of a sudden it shifted. But it, the thing is, is like, if that's just my experience, it's possible that it, I was an authoritarian because <laughs> I was a lesbian Avenger and I was part of Queer Nation and I, I was a, not a leader, so to speak, but I was in, in local spheres. I was one of the leaders, not at the national level. And so it's like maybe I was one of those lefty authoritarians <laughs> who was marching through the streets of the Castro saying, two, four, six, eight, how do you know your kids are straight? I relate to everything you just said. What, did you ever live in San Francisco? I did. Yeah, I lived in, uh, in on Market Street in uh, Fox Plaza, actually, mm-hmm. if you remember. Across the street from what's now Twitter. It wasn't Twitter when I was there. And I lived in the Inner Sunset, like 10th and Irving. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful neighborhood by Golden Gate Park. What, and then I, I lived in Berkeley, too, for a number of years. What years were you in San Francisco? Um, I was in San Francisco, let's see, 2005 to 2008. And then again... Um, 2000 well i was in berkeley from 2012 to 2015 but i i spent a lot of time in the city because i was i was part of the ftmi group there and and founding of the lou sullivan society so i was involved in the ftm community i was in san francisco i was gone by the time you got there but did you have anything to do with san francisco sex information i did not but my wife went through their um training and our apartment manager in the Inner Sunset, his name was John. He was he was very involved with that organization. But Margaret did go through. She's a sex therapist, so she went through their training. And, I went uh, through their training, too. All right. Well, let's let Nina get whatever sort of sad vegetarian food she'll have for dinner. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you yes. so much for joining us, Xander Keeg. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be on. I look forward to coming back to answer the the questions that you might have for me. So maybe yes. listeners will have questions too. Maybe the oh, turfs, that'd be awesome. The listening turfs and trannies. We can have ask Xander later. Turfs, huh? That's you can talk about that. That's an interesting. Oh, I can talk about right. that a lot, but I have to eat first.
Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support us by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you.